Amen. Let us turn to our scripture reading for this morning, Ruth at chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We come from chapter 3, which is midnight in Bethlehem, to the light of well, the same day, because the Hebrew day begins at sunset. So we come to the light of that day. We come to that morning in Ruth chapter 4, as Naomi said at the end of chapter 3, uh, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Page 285. And the Bible's under the seats. Ruth chapter 4. We're reading considering verses 1 to 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one else besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So far, the reading. 
dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do many things in secret. By God's grace, we may may be led to acts of service and love in secret. Many of the works which God has prepared beforehand for us are works which only God will see. They are acts of love and service done in secret, not known to others. We may also be called to acts of public service and love. When we think about blessings from the hand of God, God who is the overflowing fountain of all good, sometimes God gives us blessings which are on the very, we might say, private scale. Sometimes the blessings of the Lord are his upholding hand that only we know about, maybe even in a midnight hour. And other times, God gives us blessings which are publicly visible to all. We might think of of a wedding day between two believers. There's a blessing from God who has uh, established marriage and continues to bless, and it's a very public celebration and a public blessing. Well, in our text, we come from the darkness of midnight in chapter 3 and that uh, privacy of a one-on-one conversation, which now is recorded for many, but we come from that conversation which was compromising and private even as the, uh, the, the light of virtue began to shine. We come out of that and into this, this brightness of the same day. And we come to a very public, uh, a very public ceremony, a very public legal proceeding in Bethlehem at the city gate. The city gate, which is kind of the the uh, the public square, the the town hall, the county courthouse, all wrapped up into one in the ancient world. And so our theme, as we consider uh, this public, this public place in this public proceeding. Our theme this morning is this, the blessings of the Lord are found on both small and large scales. And if you want to pencil in a few more words to that, the blessings of the Lord are found on both small and large scales in both private and public places. Well, we begin with a parcel, first five verses, and then a sandal, verses six to eight, and then a pledge verses 9 to 10, and then uh, the blessing uh, proclaimed by the people in verses 11 and 12. Well, we begin with this parcel. Uh, Boaz is ready to act on his midnight promise to Ruth. He's not wasting any time. He goes up to the city of gate, to the city gate, the place of official uh, business. He needs uh, the elders of the town. He needs 10 of them to make a quorum. And he needs the other redeemer, the one who is nearer in legal terms, the one he spoke of back in chapter 3, verse 12. And here the Lord uh, brings the needed man to the place. Uh, Behold, here he comes. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, middle of verse 1. And then Boaz asks the man to turn aside the word Uh, For uh, Boaz's greeting is translated in the ESV as friend, friend, turn aside. 
It is not the typical Hebrew word or phrase for friend. It's one of those uh, difficult to translate phrases. Perhaps the best translation could have been Mr. So-and-so, come over here. Uh, it's, uh, it's intentionally kept from us what the man's name is. Mr. So-and-so, unnamed redeemer, come over here and join this legal proceeding. Uh, even as that is how the text relates it to us, it's probably not how Boaz said it out loud that morning. But uh, the, the, this book, where names are so important, intentionally keeps this name from us. Well, the unnamed uh, man comes aside, and Boaz gets the ten elders of Bethlehem needed for the quorum and the legal proceedings begin. Now, brothers and sisters, at this point, I'm just going to say, uh, in verses 3 and 5 and even in what follows, there are some uh, legal aspects that are, that are lost to us. If we put it this way, if we uh, think about the uh, real estate calculations going on here, uh, there's enough cultural distance that we can't, we can't even uh, say exactly what is all on the ledger. Uh, we're not even exactly sure what buying and selling means in this context. Uh, we do know that the Leverite laws of Deuteronomy 25 will come into view, even as we know that Boaz does not include that in his first pronouncement of the sale. It is likely that the laws of the year of Jubilee whereby every 50 years any land that was sold would be returned to a specific family and a specific family name, we, we know it's likely that those laws are also in view. And so that has something to do with this whole calculation. Who receives the land in the year of Jubilee and those kinds of things? And so, uh, whatever, whatever all of the legal details are, we know this. When Boaz gives the first description of the sale of this parcel of land, the real estate calculation is too good to pass up. The immediate response at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. Then in verse 5, Boaz adds another detail. This is not just going to be any redemption price. I'm calling in the Leverite laws of Deuteronomy 25. The laws where the letter of the law may not apply because we're not brother-in-laws, but where the spirit of the law applies. And we are going to include that law in this transaction. And now, the calculation has changed. The ledger looks much different. And the deal which was too good to pass up now leads to an immediate refusal. I cannot redeem it. That takes us into our second point, the sandal 
And that response in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. What exactly is the cost here that, that changed the calculation so much? Is it, is it that Mr. So-and-so doesn't want to marry a Moabite widow? Uh, is it because there would be too much social costs there? Is it just because he, he doesn't want to, to marry a woman that he doesn't know? Is it because he has children from a previous uh, marriage and that in the first calculation his children are getting a, a, a bigger inheritance on the next jubilee? Uh, but now uh, the calculation changes and uh, a child that he would produce with Ruth would be the heir of Elimelech and would receive all of the land that he's now buying, right? So now the calculation is you're going to buy something and then it's all going to go to this heir of Elimelech through Ruth. It, the exact details are hard for us to grab hold of. Indeed, we can't recreate the whole ledger anymore, but we know this. The calculation has changed and... He says, no, I cannot do it. And we know that there is a selfish or a self-advancing uh, self motivation here. I cannot redeem it lest I impair my own inheritance. The cost is now too much. The calculation has changed. So the ancient custom of transaction follows. The unnamed man gives his sandal to Boaz and the legal transaction is complete. Boaz now owns a new sandal. More importantly, he has that sandal as evidence that the Leverite rights, obligations, privileges are now his. And he can produce that sandal uh, as well as as calling upon the many public witnesses of that day as evidence of his new legal rights and obligations. In more modern terms, the contract is now signed and notarized. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, how, how does this apply to us? What are some things that this text of Scripture teaches to us and points us toward? As it has been said by, by more than one minister, uh, this is an example of God's math, or what one pastor called gospel math. There's calculations going on here, and even though all of the pluses and minuses are now lost to us, it is still, brothers and sisters, a helpful jumping off point for us to think about our own Gospel calculators. What are what are our calculators? How do we make calculations? What are the what are the presets in our calculators of living? Uh, my uh, my mother served as a uh, as a librarian for more than one school library over the years, and, and I remember she had one calculator that was very important. She had presets in there for some of the calculations that she needed to do back in the day. And uh, what, is, what is our calculator? What are our presets? What are our shortcuts? Do we have presets for calculations of mercy? Or do we only add up, add up what's going on 
and proceed if the equals leads to something that we can gain, something that we can get out of the situation. You see, uh, Mr. So-and-so, as his calculation changes, he is not going to make the calculation of sacrificial love. He is only willing to go so far. What are our calculators like? Do we only go along with the price to a point? Are we only willing to love others in the name of Christ as long as there's not too high of a social price? As long as we don't lose any friends? as long as we can still marry whomever we want to marry. Now you say, wait a second, Pastor, we don't still have Leverite laws. No, we don't have Leverite laws and specific obligations for marriage as sometimes existed in the Old Testament. Indeed, it sounds very strange to us to even think that such a thing could be possible in our overly romanticized age. But in our overly romanticized age, the message is you should marry whomever you want or Don't even marry whomever you want. And we hear it again and again and again. Has that changed our presets for the calculator of our life? Have we taken in that message? And is that what spits out in our equal sign? Or do we know that there's still requirements about who we are called to marry? We must marry in the Lord. And that we're called to marry with God at the center. And again, the financial uh, price here and all the pluses and minuses. We can't even put in all the factors anymore. We can only guess. But what are we uh, willing to serve Christ with? Do we only uh, give if, if it doesn't cost us too much? if there is something on the end that will give us a personal return. Well, brothers and sisters, let's uh, let's come to a pledge in verses 9 and 10. Certainly, Boaz is willing to take on this redemption price. He makes the public pledge of redemption in verses 9 and 10. A redemption pledge which promises provision both for Ruth and for Naomi, And uh, speaking about the spiritual math of these legal proceedings, Ian Duguid contrasted uh, Boaz and Mr. So-and-so in this way, quote, part of the message of the book of Ruth is that God's kingdom operates on a different kind of calculus, a new math in which the way to fullness runs through emptiness. Mr. So-and-so didn't do that kind of math, so the numbers didn't add up for him. Boaz, on the other hand, was an A student in the new math. He had an open heart for the poor. End of quote. Now, this was not just a legal proceeding. It is quite plain from Ruth 2 and into Ruth 3 that Boaz loves Ruth. He is attracted to her profession of faith, which has stirred the town. He is attracted by her godly character. Um, But even here, it appears that there was a possible path 
for marriage between Ruth and Boaz that would not have included the Leverite laws. So even here, we might say that Boaz was willing to sacrifice the possibility of marital bliss in order to go at this marriage through the Leverite law so that he could not only marry Ruth, but marry Ruth in a way that provided for her and Naomi in a special way. That is a sacrificial and trusting calculation. Certainly, Boaz is willing to endure whatever social and financial costs come with this redemption. The fact that Ruth is a foreigner is no barrier to him. Now, at this point, brothers and sisters, we need to consider even greater calculations. Because we do not know the name of Mr. So-and-so. But it is possible that we will know his name someday. Because it is possible that his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because our salvation does not depend upon one sacrificial act of mercy which we do or do not do in this life. Our salvation depends upon the only perfect sacrificial act of mercy accomplished by Jesus Christ. And there, we do know we do know the ins and outs of the calculation because it's described to us and detailed to us again and again, plainly, in many different forms. We know the calculation that the eternal Son of God, the man of heaven, had to come to earth and that God with us plus life of sacrificial and perfect service plus being betrayed and forsaken by all around him plus the humility of death on a cross plus the very wrath of God poured out on the only one without sin all of that equals salvation for sinners. We know that the one without sin dying for the many who are sinners who would yet repent and believe in him equals the sure salvation of all who trust in him. And we could go through it in a whole number of ways because the gospel calculation is plainly laid out for us again and again. Here the language of the gospel calculation as the apostle summarizes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That is the gospel calculation plainly laid out. We come with nothing. But He provides everything as we repent and trust in Him. And so this book of Ruth is not just about Ruth and Boaz, the care they have for Naomi. It goes beyond the small-scale blessings in their individual lives, such as the well, not so small-scale blessing of food for a season provided in Ruth chapter 2. It goes past the bigger-scale blessing in their lives, such as the, the, the public kinsman redeemer Boaz standing up for them and now providing for their future in a long-standing way. It, it, it goes far beyond their individual lives and it takes us to the not-so-hidden gospel pictures in this book and it takes us to the Redeemer and it takes us to the pictures of salvation which go out not just from one little town but to the very ends of the earth. This is a gospel book that takes us from one small town to all the nations with the good news of the Redeemer. Lord willing, we'll see that even more as we consider the royal genealogy and where that takes us as we consider that tomorrow morning, Lord willing. Well, now, brothers and sisters, let's work towards our conclusion by briefly looking at the blessing proclaimed on this day in verses 11 and 12. Uh, thankfully and providentially, God has brought Ruth to a town where many people are ready to bless a Moabite convert. This blessing in verses 11 and 12, it may have been a conventional blessing declared when, whenever a, a marriage was, was publicly announced, a coming marriage was publicly announced. But in this case, the people of Bethlehem do not hesitate to declare uh, the marriage blessing for uh, Boaz and, and a Moabite, a Moabite convert. They do not hesitate to uh, proclaim the marriage blessing over Boaz and Ruth. And let's consider just three things about this prayer, this public blessing. First, this blessing begins and ends with the name of the Lord. Look in the middle of verse uh, 11. We are witnesses. May the Lord. And then uh, the end of verse 12. The offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Certainly as the psalmist uh, will say it later, Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, God is the one who has established marriage and the family and it continues to be a great blessing from God who must be at the center of marriage and the family. Second, this blessing includes an understanding of covenant history. 
on the wider view, they make reference to the two great matriarchs of the nation, Rachel and Leah. On the more uh, narrow view, they refer to Tamar, who is the mother of most of the nation of Judah. That messy history recorded in Genesis 38 is used by God to drive Judah to repentance. That's what the end of Genesis 38 and the following chapters make plain. Uh, it's a messy history, but it's a history that led to the repentance, at least the repentance of Judah. And brothers and sisters, as a church to this day, we should not uh, skip over uh, messy situations. Uh, we, are, we are a hospital for sinners. Uh, the church is not perfect. And the members of the church, uh, even publicly, can stumble and fall and be in messy situations. And ultimately, we are all wandering and straying sinners in need of the mercy of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, uh, we may even come to know the name of Mr. So-and-so if he uh, trusted in, in God and repented and, and, uh, and if that was the other details of his life that we know nothing about. When we see our covenant history and when we remember that um, there's many people of God who were saved out of very messy situations, it helps us to remember this. It helps us to remember mercy when we remember our messy history. It helps us to avoid the evils of hypocrisy and to be quick to show mercy to others in all different situations. Well, third, this prayer, this blessing is more than answered. It is more than answered. Because this blessing, uh, which is given in the name of the Lord, which remembers covenant history, it's given on a pretty small scale. The town of Bethlehem, so small that it's not even listed in the towns of Judah in the, uh, in the, in the first lists and orders, this little region of Ephrathah, that's, that's the scale of the blessing. See verse 11, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. That's the prayer, that's the blessing. And brothers and sisters, uh, again to anticipate tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing, uh, this is more than answered. This is more than answered. Because God is going to use Boaz and Ruth and their descendants to give blessings that reach far beyond this little place. And then, as we think about the importance of the land, the importance of perpetuating the, the name of the dead, and the importance of God's people holding on to God's promised land, certainly God more than answers the prayers of his people. Does he not? For what is, why is the promised land and why is the inheritance of God's people so important? It's so important because it points us to the eternal promised land. And when we pray about the eternal promised land, when we pray uh, that, um, that the Lord would prepare our hearts for heaven, Every time we make that prayer by God's grace, we are praying 
beyond what we can express. How does the apostle say it by the Spirit? I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And there are prayers which God answers beyond how we express them, beyond how we could express them. And certainly, uh, prayers about the eternal promised land are prayers about that which we cannot even imagine. And so, people of God, the blessings of God for His elect are worked out in a whole myriad of ways. God blesses His people. Sometimes on small scales, in in private settings, sometimes very very publicly and with, with wonderful blessings on this earth, but ultimately He blesses us on the eternal scale beyond what we can imagine through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God works blessings for His people. God will even bring His bride, His church, to the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, teach 